Welcome to the Holistic Psychiatry Podcast. I'm Courtney Snyder, a physician and holistic child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. This episode is the second of two episodes on school shootings. In the last episode, I focused on the impacts and the data into school shootings, and within this data included information about mass school shootings, and I introduced the pathway to violence, which I will be elaborating on today. Today, I'll also talk about potential points of intervention along this pathway. And as with the last podcast, I will be including information from the work of Drs. Jillian Peterson and James Dempsey, who have an extensive database on mass shooters, which can be accessed at their website called The Violence Project. There's also a book associated with their work. And associated with this website is the Off-Ramp Project. The tagline, which I think says it all, is, The road to violence is long, let's build more exits. So this website offers information, training, resources for anyone who has been impacted by mass shootings or is interested in preventing the next one. And really, the information and resources are applicable to understanding violence as a whole and to all forms of holistic violence prevention. In the last episode, I provided the data that they had collected on all school shootings. And today, before I discuss the pathway to violence, I'd like to provide more specifically the data on mass school shootings. So to remind you the Violence Project, I'm going to give you their definition for mass shootings and different researchers will slightly vary in how they define it. But in this case, four or more victims are murdered with firearms, not including the offender, within one event, and at least some of the murders occurred in a public location or locations in close geographical proximity, and the murders are not attributable to any other underlying criminal activity or commonplace circumstance, for example, a bank robbery. So in the data that they have based since 1966, there have been 13 mass shootings in schools. Twelve were former or current students who carried out the act. The average age of the gunman was 18. Eight of these died in the attack, and seven were apprehended. Most leaked plans in advance. Most were inspired by past shooters, so there is evidence that There is copycat, but also evidence that they are seeking fame and notoriety. And this is important to consider because as the media shares names and photos still of mass shooters, they're still contributing and feeding this. Typically, there's evidence of self-hate and despair and a turning of this toward a group. So as I go through the pathway to violence, this extends beyond mass school shooters to all school shooters. And you might notice that the interventions that would be helpful in these cases would also be helpful to anyone who is in crisis. So instead of thinking, oh, more that we all need to do because of mass shooting, think of this as an opportunity to prevent these, but also to be helpful to every student in school and everyone in our community. All that being said, none of this changes the need for stricter gun laws, something I discussed in the last podcast. 
So though not necessarily considered part of the pathway to violence, it is worth noting that all of the mass school shooters were boys or men. And so I'd like to comment on this, and this is worthy of a podcast on its own, as is just the deeper root causes of violence. But men do commit violence 10 times more than women. And we know that girls and women tend to internalize their feelings, which can contribute to things like anxiety and depression. And boys and men are more likely to externalize their feelings and thus their feelings can be expressed more outwardly. So this could be hostility, delinquency, or aggression. There are arguments for both social and biologic factors that would contribute to boys and men having a greater tendency towards violence. However, like anything that I talk about on this podcast, I would say there are multiple variables socialization, if we start with uh, social factors, could be homeschool or society and how we expect boys and men to be, how we expect them to express their feelings, even what is communicated through the broader culture, through things like movies and even sports. It does appear that men are more likely than women to have had a history of physical abuse, whereas women are more likely to have had a history of sexual abuse. I think even if we think about very early life, I've talked on previous podcasts about attachment, which is really our foundation when it comes to our emotional health, that this time period, even though we may not remember it, it can be extremely important and may not necessarily show up in research. So I would suspect even at the earliest part of life, there can be abuse, neglect, and an attitude that boys need to be strong and tough and not cry, and in some cases may be harmed if they do show their feelings. So those are some considerations when it comes to social and environmental pieces. But from a physiologic piece, there is evidence that higher levels of testosterone can contribute to greater aggression One study showed that juvenile delinquents and prisoners who have high levels of testosterone acted more violently. So testosterone can affect aggression by influencing the development of various areas of the brain that control aggressive behavior. Even women who have higher testosterones relative to other women who don't could have a greater vulnerability to aggression. There are studies that show testosterone affects aggression by influencing various areas of the brain that control aggressive behavior. One study showed that people who feel they have been insulted show both more aggression as well as more testosterone. And it has been shown that stress is also associated with higher levels of testosterone and aggression. So the pathway to violence, as described by the Violence Project, begins with childhood trauma. So 70% of school shooters have a known history of trauma. And remember that two children with the same traumatic events can experience this very differently, just as two adults who are regular smokers will have very different health outcomes. Those who have a history of trauma when it comes to school shooters 
tended to kill more victims than those without trauma. And of all mass shooters, so this is including school shooters and other mass shooters, those who had a childhood trauma were more likely to be school shooters, college or university shooters, or carried out mass shootings at places of worship. Those without childhood trauma more commonly experienced trauma as an adult, and their mass shootings were at restaurants, retail, and workplaces. A number of the school shooters have had parents who committed suicide or had a history of violence themselves. In some cases, the history of violence went back multiple generations, which could speak to a social transfer of trauma, but also to genetic vulnerabilities, to biochemical imbalances, and more likely a combination of these factors. Could we start to consider intervening even at this earliest stage? How do we solve trauma? It's overwhelming. On a very individual and personal level, most people don't intervene. They may not know there is a problem or really want to know there is a problem for that matter. And if they suspect a child is experiencing trauma through abuse or loss, they may feel that they don't have adequate training, that they don't have time, that they don't see it as their role. Maybe they're protecting or fearful of a parent or getting a parent in trouble. And maybe we rationalize that it's not our business. Then there can be the obstacles of directing someone to help, lack of insurance, lack of providers, stigma. Perhaps it's not practical. It's not necessarily a given that someone would be able to get to appointments. And within the school setting, the national average of student-to-counselor ratio is 400 to 41 students to one counselor. Children and teens can be falling through the cracks when they're being emotionally and or physically harmed. The National Association of School Psychologists reports 60% of children don't get the services they need due to access or stigma. Most school shooters had no one to turn to. They are marginalized and isolated. Nearly all have been bullied. They often don't fit in. They can have feelings of worthlessness. They may not feel seen or feel that their humanity is recognized. They may see themselves as victims and feel a great injustice has been done to them. Some of this may be real, and some may be perceived, and it can be a combination of both of those factors. Let me add here, too, that they are at the extreme when it comes to experiencing isolation. However, for all of us, there has been a breakdown of social support, lack of trust in institutions, and lack of trust in one another. There are many drivers to this, and perhaps that will be another podcast. But if you add to this that we live in a country that was built upon the idea of self-reliance, this way of operating in the world can also contribute to a lack of connection. So because there are so many obstacles to traumatized children being identified and helped, there is now a push for schools and other people in children's lives to become what is called trauma-informed because there's not enough counselors and not enough mental health professionals to meet this need. So being trauma-informed means being informed about and sensitive to trauma and providing a safe, stable, and understanding environment for students and staff. So this is the opposite of it's not our problem or, or thinking that we can't be helpful. 
There's also a push to increase social-emotional learning. Emotional learning is the educational method that aims to foster social and emotional skills within a school curriculum. This, again, not only educates those who are struggling, but is beneficial to all students. And an interesting and, I think, powerful concept that is being encouraged is what is called benevolent childhood experiences. So there's a lot of research into the impacts of adverse childhood experiences and how this can contribute to not only mental health conditions, but also chronic physical health conditions. And the idea of benevolent childhood experiences is the idea that if we create more positive experiences, these may help mitigate some of the negative early childhood experiences. So this can be something as simple as taking an interest in someone and asking how they are. There's a nice TED Talk by a man who was planning a school shooting that he didn't carry out, and he describes that the turning point for him and what prevented him from carrying out the attack was a friend invited him over, and that friend's mother made him a blueberry pie. There are endless ways that we can be providing benevolent experiences for children and for adults, for that matter. Six out of ten mass shooters have been found to have a history of mental illness diagnosis or a history of treatment. So keep in mind, just because someone hasn't been diagnosed or treated, that does not mean that they do not have a mental illness. And again, most people with mental illness are not violent. To know if someone is mentally ill, we would need to know if they were experiencing symptoms when planning and carrying out the shooting, and if those decisions influence their decision to act. Now, this is sort of the, I would say, a stricter definition. However, all that being said, I would say if someone is carrying out an act to destroy themselves and others, the diagnostic manual or not, that would be considered a mental health issue. Now, arguing the legal definition of insanity is a different consideration, and that's where we get into other areas. So criminal insanity is understood as a mental defect or disease that makes it impossible for a defendant to understand their actions or to understand that their actions were wrong. So when I hear on the news commentators saying that most school shooters didn't have mental illness, I'm not sure what they mean. They could mean that most did not have a history of having been diagnosed with a mental health condition, which doesn't mean they don't have one, or they could mean that most aren't criminally insane, and thus saying that most school shooters understood their actions and understood that their actions were wrong. Obviously, I don't know what they mean, and it's possible and perhaps likely that they don't know what they mean either, so just keep that in mind as you hear some of the things that are being talked about. The best that can be done to gain a better understanding of perpetrators is to gather information about mental health history and symptoms. The easiest mental health condition to assess is psychosis. And so remember that when someone is being described as having psychosis, that's not the same as being psychopathic, even though they sound the same. When someone is psychotic, they have lost touch with reality, where the term psychopath is a term, and it's not necessarily one that we use clinically, 
but it's used to describe someone who is typically narcissistic and has little conscience or empathy for others. The extreme of this would be a serial killer, and a serial killer is a person who commits a series of murders, often with no apparent motive and typically following a characteristic, predictable pattern. Someone described as a psychopath or Clinically, we might use the term instead, antisocial personality disorder. They can be seen as charming and glib and have a very calm demeanor. Ninety, Somewhere between 94 and 95% of those with antisocial personality disorder have been found through Dr. Walsh's research to be under-methylated, and I do have a podcast about that. And many of us, myself included, are not sociopaths and we are undermethylated as well. So undermethylation can contribute to various vulnerabilities. Mass shooters, however, are not described as charming and glib. And for most mass shooters, the psychopath label, according to criminologists, does not appear to fit. Dr. William Walsh, who I've discussed his work on nutrient imbalances in brain health, in previous podcasts, he has suspected, at least in the past, that these individuals were overmethylated. And this was because it appeared that a number of them had been on antidepressants and appeared to have a change in behavior with that that could have contributed to them becoming violent. And I will include a link to that particular research by Dr. Walsh. My own suspicion is that many of these individuals have pyrrole issues or pyrrole disorder in combination with a methylation imbalance, either over or under methylation. I have podcasts on under methylation and on pyrrole disorder, and I'll need to do a future podcast on what appear to be physiologic root causes of violence, which can certainly vary from person to person. However, the way someone carries out that violence or aggression can point to a potential root cause. So the other common factor along the pathway to violence is crisis. So with all mass shooters, 87% are in crisis. And what is meant by crisis is that someone's current situation has overwhelmed their ability to cope. For example, the Parkland shooter, his mother died three months earlier. And someone's crisis could be days, weeks, months, or even years before they carry out a shooting. And so during a crisis, there is typically a noticeable change in one's behavior. So behavioral changes, all of these could be exhibited or just one. But one way to remember it is the four Ds of behavior, which the Violence Project uses, And these are all changes from one's baseline. So it could be disruptive behavior, disrespectful behavior, distress behavior, or dangerous behavior. So examples could be increased agitation, abusive behavior or violent gestures, isolation, losing touch with reality, paranoia, depressed mood, mood swings, inability to perform daily tasks. And most had more than one of these. There can also be, for school shooters, a decrease in loss of interest in school activities. They may already have a low commitment or aspiration towards education, and there can be a drop in academic performance. 
Dr. Jillian Peterson, who I've mentioned with this research, uses a really nice analogy, which is a balloon model. And so if you consider a balloon that is full, when we add air, there is increased tension and more likely it will pop. The final puff of air into that could be a loss, rejection, expulsion from school, But on the other hand, the release of some air by someone saying something kind or showing interest, as I mentioned, blueberry pie, uh, that could be enough to deflate the balloon because school shooters don't snap. Their tension is building over time. Failures are adding up. Separately, there could be escalating paranoia. So it's not as if the mental health picture is the same for all school shooters. And though, again, I'm not focusing on it in this particular podcast, for those who do follow or have an interest in my podcast on nutrient imbalances, I would say the likelihood is that many of these individuals have pyrroles going up under stress, and as a result of that are becoming deficient in B6 and zinc, both of which can have multiple impacts on brain health from depression all the way to psychosis. Lowering the stress again is key for physiologic reasons and emotional and social reasons. So with an understanding that crisis is typically at play, there are potential interventions here that are being looked at. Teams could be put together to investigate when children in school are in crisis and then help link them to mental health services. There is a movement to assure that every child or teen has a trusted adult in the school, and this would be for their benefit, but also if they need to report concerns about a peer. There is also a recognition of the need to train school staff in skills to diffuse a crisis. And really, crisis intervention is a skill that anyone can learn, not unlike CPR, and it is part of, as Dr. Peterson would say, letting the air out of the balloon. Not all of it, so this isn't a fix. Even within the Violence Project book, describe a four-step model of crisis intervention. De-escalate yourself, de-escalate the space around you, meaning talk to the person alone. Use nonverbal communication. Actively listen and give the person some very straightforward options. So I'm not obviously providing training here on crisis intervention, but I do want you to have a sense that it does not have to be as complicated as one might think. Similarly, as with a suicidal crisis, asking directly is not expected to plant a seed of an idea. So many people are afraid to ask someone if they're wanting to harm themselves or others. It is not thought that this is leading a person to think that, but it is helping recognize when a person is is in need and potentially a danger to themselves or others. And great importance is for teachers and staff to have an opportunity, which could be a regular meeting, to communicate about students they're especially concerned about. So I'm not covering all the potential tools but wanted to give you a sense of what types of considerations are out there and provide resources if you're interested. So though not considered 
part of the pathway. I do want to mention this here because it is so common. Uh, fascination with violence or obsession with violence. The Secret Service study on school shooters found that half had an interest in violent topics and identified with dark themes. Some of the school shooters started out curious, but then found a kinship with other school shooters. They see other people who feel the way they do. They notice the notoriety. The school shooting starts to become not only normalized, but also meaningful for them. Finally, a way to be seen. Mass shooters often study other mass shooters. Mass shooting appears to be both contagious when one gets a lot of media attention, more tend to follow, and are fed by that media attention. The Violence Project research suggests that there is likely a link between the Buffalo and Uvalde shootings. The shooter in Buffalo did get a lot of attention. This could have emboldened another 18-year-old already on the path to this type of violence. Columbine shooters have had a subculture of fans. At least 20 of the school shootings use Columbine as a blueprint. So there is a contagion model, and this requires media. The active shooter drill that I mentioned in the previous podcast starts with footage from Columbine. This is part of the concern of those who oppose active shooter drills is that it could be planting the seeds in a vulnerable student. Keep in mind also that when it comes to media, that there's great profit that's generated for networks when there is a mass shooting. And they don't necessarily have the incentive to not share the person's name or the photos of the person that carried out the act. But if they did withhold that information, the likelihood is that much of this would start to diminish, just in the way that it has diminished with serial killers that we rarely now hear about. I'll mention here two video games because that's something that's been brought up in the news as a potential root cause. And the research collectively would not point to video games being a cause as much as an accelerant, meaning that those who are vulnerable because of past trauma and personal crisis can be more susceptible to any type of online violent media or violent simulations through video games. 78% of school shooters leaked plans ahead of time, usually to peers. So this is one of the areas of that pathway to violence. This could be bragging about access to firearms. Many shooters are actively showing warning signs. They are talking about what they're going to do and or that they're suicidal. This is considered a cry for help as opposed to showing off. This is considered someone communicating that they are not okay. It can be important with this to resist punitive responses because not only can this increase the crisis for the student, but it can also shut down what one should want to know and further isolate the student. So if someone says something, they're punished, isolated, and, for example, expelled, putting them more into crisis, this doesn't help the overall threat but could increase the threat to the school. So what if someone does tell us 
Many students don't want to snitch. Here again is where if all students had a trusted adult in the school that they could communicate with, that could be helpful. There's an increasing push for a centralized reporting mechanism where anyone could report anonymously. And this has been shown to increase students' willingness to report weapons in school settings. There is one called the P3 app where someone can easily report information and then the school is contacted. But with this, there needs to be systems in place and training on how to handle this information and situation when it arises. So it is important to figure out what's going on with a student before choosing to punish them. Crisis teams should be mandatory in schools, and they should be funding. However, most of this funding and most of the energy that we are all hearing more and more of relates to security. There is now a $3 billion school safety industry, and as I described in the last podcast, there's no evidence that the hardening of schools is working. There are concerns that it is causing more harm to children and that it is making the incidences actually more violent rather than less when they do occur. Experts in this area who are looking, I would say, at the biggest picture would say that the shooters are not averted by security. However, they are averted by someone reacting to their leakage, leakage being things that they have said about what they are thinking about doing. So the best security is considered relationships and the building of community where there's trusted adults and an ability to communicate concern about someone who is struggling. To repeat some of the thoughts and feelings that have been communicated by school shooters was feeling a need to stand up for themselves, feeling powerless, and this seeming to be an opportunity to have power, feeling worthless and that there was nothing to lose, intending to strike back for real or perceived injustices done to them. And keep in mind that for all of us, when we feel that society is unfair, we are less likely to play by the rules. So that doesn't mean that we become violent, but if someone has these vulnerabilities and a sense that no one is taking care of them, so they will take care of themselves, and add to that an element of performance or even competition. So some of these school shooters are aiming for bigger body counts and bigger headlines and are inspired by attention and notoriety, and the media could be impacting this. So this would be an area of intervention, as would what I'm already hoping is obvious would be stricter gun laws. So I hope I've left you with a deeper understanding and a belief that there are answers and that those answers don't necessarily have to involve hardening our schools and hardening our hearts as individuals in the society, but instead provide our schools, and all of us, greater incentive to create community and relationships and trust and an ability to recognize the needs of others. If you know someone you think could benefit from this information, this and the last podcast, perhaps an educator, parent, lawmaker, health professional, 
even someone in the media that you think could benefit, please consider sharing. And if generally you think this type of information is helpful and want to help me get this information out into the world, please consider sharing, commenting, or liking on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram. And until we connect on a future podcast, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you.